So, um, let's say this. We're going to talk about the Reformation today. We're going to take a pause from uh, Gospels and Discipleship from that series. And I really debated whether or not to do this, but it's really good for my soul that at least one time a year, I kind of spend some time studying the Reformation again, kind of in just a little bit more historical perspective each time. Last year I did one uh, about Reformation, and I just kind of tracked the story of Luther. And by the way, if you were in the 9 o'clock, Austin talked about Luther this morning. He's doing the, a class right now on the five solas, and so did a great uh, job this morning. And so I kind of thought to myself, okay, well, what am I going to talk about this year? What, what, what about Reformation? And if you know anything about Reformation, really the idea we're getting across is justification by faith, right? And this is a doctrine that was kind of lost in the church at that time, the uh, the Catholic Church, it was reigning at the time. And and really, this got discovered. Really, and you look at it historically, it's it's not that Luther ever set out for this Reformation to happen. In 1517, on the 31st of October, he nailed what's called 95 Theses to the door at the University of Wittenberg, Germany. And, and when he nailed those, it was really just an academic, um, it was an academic exercise. He wanted to debate the sale of indulgences. If you don't know anything about the sale of indulgences. Basically, you could get your family member out of purgatory. No such thing. But you could get them out if you just gave enough money, right? And so it was a way for the, for the Catholic Church at the time to make money. Surprising that people try to profit over religion. Are y'all shocked? But it was happening. And so eventually through time, there was actually a reformation that happened. But originally, that wasn't what Martin Luther was trying to do. His followers took that 95 theses they translated into german it was originally in latin and it caught wind it caught wind and spread out and a reformation started from there and a lot of things happened if you want to kind of hear a lot of uh, kind of a, a lengthy go back to this same date to october 31st last sunday of last year and listen i kind of walked through kind of a a brief history of the reformation of what happened from 1517 on through with Martin Luther all the way to his death. I kind of covered that last year. So I'm not going to cover it this year. But here's what I want to cover. So we have Martin Luther. Justification by faith. We have from that. We get the five solas. Scripture alone. Faith alone. Grace alone. To the glory of God alone. Right? We, we, we get so many great things. But you know I've noticed. When we talk about the Reformation. Every time this time of year. Something else kind of caught my soul this week that I couldn't shake. Not only from Martin Luther do we get the idea of justification by faith. Well, we don't get the idea from him. He just, you know, it, it, it tended to get brought to the surface as he came to faith in Christ himself. A doctrine that was already in the scriptures. A doctrine that was nothing new to the apostles. Nothing new to the early church. Had really gotten lost during the medieval times. But I will say this, there's something else that Luther did that I think sometimes we miss, and I fear we're missing it today. I fear we're missing it today. So Martin Luther, he enters into the monastic world. If you know anything about the monastic world, if you know anything about a priest and a monk, if you know anything about that, these guys did not marry, okay? And in the Catholic Church at that time, celibacy and non-marriage was seen as an ultimate sign of spirituality, in fact, marriage and family, it was, did not seem to have the high esteem. The, the greatest thing you could shoot for was to be a priest, to be a monk, to surrender your life, to surrender that part of yourself. That was Martin Luther. He was not a man that was married as the Reformation happened. He was not a man 
that he was a, he was a man that took a vow of celibacy, and that was seen as the ultimate spiritual epic and climax. What's interesting is though is the Reformation happens is Luther, um, as Luther changes, he eventually becomes a married man, and things change. So I want you to understand from the Reformation we get the bringing back to the surface justification by faith. Praise God, right? Then also we get this holding up of the Genesis ideal of the family. And you see it in his own life. In just a minute, I'll talk to you a little bit about he actually got married. He got married actually saying he'd never do it. And he ended up getting married to a former nun, Katie Von Bora. What was very interesting is when she was, when she, <laughs> when, when, when he, when she came out of the convent, it was hard to find her a suitor. And, and they, there's lots of failed attempts by Luther. And, and they tried, and she tried, and they all tried. They couldn't find a husband for her. So eventually, guess what she did? She said, Luther, you're the one that got me out of this. You, we, we don't have to marry me. How do you like that? So 26-year-old Catherine von Bora and 42-year-old Martin Luther marry. They have kids. They have children. They have a wonderful 21-year marriage. And the interesting thing about Luther is, when you look at his life, here's a guy that he begins to promote the idea that we should not have men of God as single. We should not have pastors uh, like, and priests in this kind of idea of, of, of living this kind of celibate life. Marriage is a good thing. Nothing wrong with singleness, but marriage and family are a good thing. There is an ideal that the scriptures have. And Luther, by his own life and writings promote this idea of the family. And I think it's something that we sometimes forget. I know you may be thinking, no, we don't don't forget it. We don't forget it. We talk about it all the time. Yeah, but I don't know if we really talk about it in the way that I think Luther would look at it and talk about it today. So a couple things I want to point out to you. Do this. I just want to take a couple, a minute, to just talk about the reformation of the family. We've got the reformation of faith, justification by faith, but... If you're looking for a title, I would say the reformation of the family. The reformation of the family. As tracked through his own life and writings about marriage and family. So Martin Luther was a man that not only led a reformation of the family, but experienced it in himself. I could say that part of his contribution was this reinvigoration of the idea of marriage and family. God's ideal. Go to Genesis 1. I want to show this to you. None of this is extra revelation to you, but I want to point out some things. Genesis 1, 27 says, And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So we see from Luther a man who actually did this. And, and what's interesting, in the very beginning, this wasn't actually his ideal. He, he actually proclaimed that this was not, no one's going to force me into marriage. We're not going to do this. So even when you read the historians, it seems like in the very beginning of his marriage with Katie Von Bora, it wasn't one of those kind of like, um, I'm excited, loving, kind of in love kind of marriages in the beginning. It was, well, this is the right thing to do. I mean, I'm telling all these priests and nuns they should marry, they should get out. Like, what are we to do? 
and I can't find her, someone to marry. She wants to marry me. I mean, I'm telling everybody they need to do this. Why do I think I'm exempt from this? This seems like the right thing to do. But you find historically, as they continued on, he grew in his love for her. They had, I mean, they had multiple children. They had six children. And he grew in love for her. They had a great relationship, actually. She was actually known for it to be a great homemaker, a great manager. She, she, she actually took their farm and made it profitable. They were known for, he was known for his dinner table conversations where people would be invited, ex-nuns and ex-priests and dignitaries and people who were wanting to know more about what the one true God was like. And they would have something called table talks. And Katie Von Bohr was the one that was providing the hospitality for that. They had a deep and loving and abiding relationship, a deep and great appreciation for each other. Oh, the Reformation brought justification by faith, but it also brought a reformation of the family. And I would say the Genesis ideal was held back up as a result of the Reformation. Go to Genesis chapter 2. When you go to Genesis chapter 2, and you look in verse 18, it says, And Yahweh God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. When you read the history, Katie Von Bora was a great helper to him. Notice at the very end in verse 23 of chapter 2, it says, And the man said, This one is finally bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father, cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. If you look at Katie Von Bora's relationship and Martin Luther's relationship as it progressed through their 21 years of marriage, 16 years. Can you imagine 16 years difference, right? I mean, I'm, I'm 43 years old, right? He was 42 years old. I actually know someone right now who is, oddly enough, I know someone who is 42 years old about to marry a 26-year-old. What do, you think, what do you think the parents think about that? But here is Martin Luther focused on what God has called. And what you see as a transformation, as part of the Reformation, you now see this holding up of the family. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. You see the Genesis ideal being resurrected. In Ephesians chapter 5, you see the relationship that marriage was always meant to exemplify being held up in the Reformation. The Bible clearly tells us in Ephesians 5, 22. I'm going to read the passage for you. You, might, you. you know it, but I want you to be rehearsed in this. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, and Christ also the head of the church, and he himself being the Savior of the body. As the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Katie Von Bora, Martin Luther had this kind of relationship. I don't think that she was some pushover. She wasn't. She was strong. But they were a great model. In fact, that was one of the things about Luther is that, that this is why marriage was such a good thing for those in pastoral ministry. Because you could be an example to the flock, right? You could show the church what God had meant for marriage and family to look like. You were a model of it. In fact, here in a minute, we'll look at 1 Peter 3 and Titus 1 where it exemplifies that that's part of the pastoral call is that a church should actually be able to look at a pastor's home and go, okay, so that's what it looks like. You see in verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
You can't read about his life with her and not understand that this was a man who loved his wife the way he loved his Savior. He might sanctify and cleanse her by the washing of water with the word. The word was constantly taught, constantly brought up. Verse 27, that he might present to himself a church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Remember, Paul's pointing back to Genesis. This mystery is great on speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individually, individual among you is to love his own wife, even as himself. The wife see that she respects and reverences his husband. When you see the relationship, you see Ephesians 5 being lived out. There was a submission of Katie Von Bora to Luther. There was a gentle, loving oversight, cleansing her with the word, worried, concerned about her soul. There was this beautiful relationship. To be honest with you, that's not what men in spiritual authority were cultured to do in the Catholic Church. Marriage and family were seen at a low, at a low end. The Reformation through Martin Luther and the other reformers brings it back up. Go down to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. Even in Luther's own home, he considered the discipline and instruction of children to be preeminent. I mean, he believed. He believed that you should be fruitful and multiply. But that doesn't mean that you just have children alone, that those children need to be discipled and become arrows for the kingdom. You see in chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your mother and father, is the first commandment with promise, so that it may be well with you, that you may live long in the land. In Luther's home, they disciplined their children. They instructed their children. They sang with their children. They taught their children. He believed that the most important place of discipleship happens at the home. Children are called to honor and obey their parents. There might be a time in life where you're no longer underneath, underneath their authority. You're now an adult, so you're not obeying, but you're always honoring. Luther promoted this idea of honoring. In fact, there was this idea that was circling around at the time that you could, you could, that you're, you could have your own arrange, you could do your own marriages and you didn't really need to network that with your parents. You didn't really need to honor them in that. And he actually would go against that. He actually would promote the idea that you actually should seek to honor your parents. You should seek their insight. You should actually talk to them. If this thing even exists today where there, the thought is, well, my romantic relationships have nothing to do with my family, so this is mine, that's theirs. But I will tell you, when you start looking through the Scripture, you discover that God has a bigger vision for the family. God has a bigger vision for the family. I mean, we're talking multi-generational. We're talking, it's important who you marry. It's important. And it's important that you would seek the wisdom of of your parents. And it's important that parents would see they have an essential part in the wisdom of that themselves. And I would tell you this, you have the reformation to thank for that. If you're a youth here today and your parents are interested in who you marry and they were interested in who you marry, they're interested in who you're dating. Praise God. You have the reformation to thank for some of that. But I also say this, if there's this idea of 
Why is God telling me as a man to continually disciple my household? You have the Reformation to thank for that. Now, it's interesting. Martin Luther believed that, that part, of, part of the pastoral ministry was that you were an example to the flock. So this is a good thing. How could a priest who was not married and, and, and celibate actually do that kind of thing? By the way, just a side note. Did y'all know that the priests typically weren't very celibate? It was not a common thing for a bishop to be paid off for these priests who would publicly be considered celibate, but privately they, they had handmaids. So it's not like these guys are actually living it right. And Martin Luther knew that. Martin Luther knew that this was a corruption of the Genesis ideal. God was actually for marriage and family. And what better way, like, how can these priests who were supposed to be celibate on the side, the bishops are being paid off so they continue to, to have their fornication kind of lives. Meanwhile, they're preaching to these same women and their own offspring that are actually illegitimate. And so Martin comes in and just says, listen, this, this is a corruption. Actually, why are, we not, why are we doing this to these priests? Let's let them marry, raise up godly children. And let him be an example to the flock as the scriptures have called him to be. Do this. Go over to First Timothy chapter three. First Timothy chapter three. The Reformation brought up the standard back to the family. It called on men to lead their families and lead them well. It called on women to have a posture of submission and responsiveness to their husbands. It called a husband and wife, a mother and father, to focus their life and their direction on discipling their own children. You can thank the Reformation for that. Now, it's interesting. When you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, there's, there, these are what we would call typically the, these are, these are what a pastor must have in his life, right? If someone's going to leave the church, these are the qualifications. They're moral. All of them are moral qualifications, except one, he must be able to teach. Kind of, you probably don't want to have a guy preaching if he don't, can't really teach you the scriptures. But what's really interesting is the family life is chronicled in this. So take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4 through 5. You have the Reformation to think that this gets brought back. Scripture alone, this gets brought back up to the surface. It says that a man, is, if he's going to lead his family, lead, lead a church, he has to lead his household well. And just so you understand, when we read this text, God's call for every man is to follow the model of what they would see in their pastor. Y'all, y'all with me, right? So... God, what God calls a pastor to live out morally is what God calls every man to live out morally. But it should be that men can look at a pastor, an elder, and go, okay, there's an example of how that's lived out. Verse 4 says this, that a pastor should be leading his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. If a man's children are given to rebellion... It's not talking about perfect kids, right? But if his children are given to a lack of submission to the household code, to his authority and leadership, verse 5, if a man does not know how to lead his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Luther raises up this standard of we've got to have families, and they, the people have got to figure out, have got to have a model of how to disciple their families. And the pastoral qualifications show that Man, a man must lead his family. How can he lead the church if he can't lead his family? So Martin Luther was focused on leading his family. Now, he, 
he was, he was, from what you read, he was a strong disciplinarian. And I would, I would probably say a lot stronger than any one of us would probably try to average and be. Some of that was a little bit of how the times were at that point. But his children loved him. They were loved. And he loved spending time with them. He loved discipling them. He loved teaching them scripture. He loved to sing with them. I was listening to a message one time by John MacArthur. And someone asked him the question, what do you think was the, the, the best discipling thing you did in your home with your own children? And John MacArthur said this, we sang with them. We sang a lot. We sang with our kids. We sang great hymns and songs about who God is with our children. That's one of the best ways we discipled our kids. So it says, Pastor, so Martin Luther meant to show the reformation of the family of this is what verse 4 and 5 look like. Now do this. Go over to Titus chapter 1 verse 6. Also, this gives you the qualifications of a pastor, of an elder, but also it gives the, his family life. Now look in verse 6. This is very interesting. It says this. If any man is beyond reproach, the husband of one wife, just a side note, Luther was a one-woman man, right? He was a one-woman man. Just all married men, please hear me with this. Anything short of that is sin. Anything short of that is sin. The digital device, it ought to show that you're a one-woman man. When you drive down the street and where your eyes go, a one-woman man. When you go into a store or you work in a business or you interact with anybody of the opposite sex, a one-woman man. Anything less than that, you're not capturing the spirit of what God wants. You're not capturing what the reformation for the family actually happened as a result. Martin Luther was a one-woman man. It says that he's to be a one-woman man, but this is part of his household code. And then it says this. Having faithful children. Now, I'm reading the LSB, right? Having faithful children who are not accused of dissipation or rebelliousness, right? Does everybody see that in verse 6? You all with me? You see that in verse 6? Oh, Titus 1.6. Titus 1.6. Did I not say Titus 1.6? I'm sorry. I want to point something out to you. How many of y'all are using an ESV version? Okay. How many of you are using an NASV version? How are you, many of you are using the Bible that Jesus used called the King James Version? Okay, good. Here's how the English Standard Version says Titus 1.6. It's important what I'm about to read to you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband and wife and his children are believers. All right? Not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That's ESV. Let me read to you the New American Standard Bible. It says this. If any man is beyond reproach, the husband of one wife having children who believed not accused of indecent behavior or rebellion. Now, if you have an, I have an LSB Bible right here. Interesting, if you look in chapter 1, verse 6 of the LSB, what I'm reading right here, it says, namely, if any man is beyond reproach, the husband and one wife having faithful children. Right? doesn't say believing children, faithful children. Now, you might be wondering, why does it say that? Why, why is that even there like that? Well, I would say a couple things. 
I don't think the translators of the LSB did a bad job by saying faithful instead of believing, right? I don't think that. The, the word pistos that's used there, it, it means believing. Anytime it's used in the scripture, the Greek word used there, pistos, actually denotes believing. But actually you would say this, can an unbeliever in Christ be faithful? No. An unbeliever be faithful to Jesus, right? They can be faithful to carry out duties and responsibilities, but can an unbeliever be faithful to Jesus? So that's why the LSB translators thought this is still a good, this is still a good translation, faithful, because you can't be faithful if you're not a believer. But you see like ESV and NASB say believer. It, let me go even a step further. The Reformation propped up this idea of marriage and family. A man who's a one-woman man, loves his wife, has children, be fruitful and multiply to the glory of God, arrows for the kingdom, making disciples. And the pastoral office is also to show forth what that's like. And you can see it in how he trains his children, which really has a lot to do with the younger children in 1 Timothy 3. And you can see it as his children get older in Titus chapter 1, verse 6. It says in chapter, it says in Titus 1, 6, that they, having faithful or believing children, who are not accused of dissipation or rebellion. That word dissipation is from the Greek word osatia. It means debauchery, indecent behavior. It means reckless deeds, prodigal living. In the King James, they use the word rioting. It's a word used for drunken revelry at pagan festivals. This kind of, this is why most, and by the way, this is a, a point of like theological debate, right? Some don't like this verse, verse 6. It's a challenging one because a lot of times you would read it and you would go, wait a minute. If God's the one that saves, why would you ever hold that against the pastor believing children? He's not the one that actually controls that. You're right. Only God does. But the point of the text is this. If a man's leading a church... He, if he cannot lead his own children to the Lord and lead them through into sanctification, how can he lead people in the church to the Lord and lead them through into sanctification? Now, people will look at this text and go, well, this is only speaking to little children. Well, the interesting thing is that word children in verse 6, the Greek word used for it is technon, which that word can be translated when it says child, it doesn't denote age. If you were looking in verse 4, he calls Titus my child in verse 4. And guess what the Greek word there is? Technon, the same Greek word. Now, the interesting thing about the text is in chapter in this verse, it says, having believing children, faithful children, who are not accused of dissipation. A little child cannot do dissipation. I'm sorry, but, you know, your pre-K kid's not out drinking. It's not happening, right? Your, your pre-K kid... Your second grader is not out living a kind of re- rebellious, prodigal, reckless, writing kind of living. You might be thinking, have you ever seen my two-year-old? I get it. So this is why many would say, actually, this is in reference to children of any age, even as the children start to get older. Now, I'll give you just a little insight here. Um, so when I was studying for um, my master's degree, one of my professors was a guy named Stuart Scott. Anybody ever heard of Stuart Scott? Ever read anything about Stuart Scott, right? Okay. Like one person, okay? I recommend. Um, actually, there's a book in the bookstore about faithful parenting by Stuart Scott. So um, he actually was on staff at John MacArthur's church, and um, he had to resign. 
because his oldest daughter um, went to Christian school, doing all the right things. His oldest daughter came to him one day and said, Dad, what the Bible says a believer is, that's not what I am. Now, she had professed Christ, right, verbally, just like it, right? But she had said in her latter teenage years, if I'm reading the scripture, what a Christian is, I am not that. And so part of their, the part of the pastoral qualifications in John MacArthur's church is that you you have faithful believing children, not accused of dissipation or rebelliousness. So he had to resign from that position. It was humbling. It was hard. Of course, what's really great is if you got to know things later, that same daughter years later actually did become a believer eventually and is now walking with the Lord. But in that situation, he he had to resign from being a pastor. So what, what am I trying to point out to you is this. Martin Luther, the Reformation, elevated the family life where a man of God now must train, disciple, and you'll see it in the outflow of the children that come up through his house. That they won't be given to debauchery, dissipation, and decent behavior. They won't be given, in verse 6, to rebellion. He lifts it up. That's part of what the Reformation does. Now, the interesting thing is that, that a parent doesn't have all the control in the world over their children coming to faith. But if a man is going to be in the office of a, of a leader, a shepherding leader, a pastor... His children have to fit into this even as they grow into their latter years. Now, here's the reason I bring all this. This wasn't something that was elevated back then. The Reformation helped to, not only did it bring justification by faith, but it brought an elevation back to the family life. Here's my fear. My fear is that we've not caught on yet. Man, I think we've caught on to justification by faith. I think we've been ringing the bell. I hear so much talk about it. But I want to tell you this, every time the talk of the Reformation comes around each October, rarely do I hear anything about the Reformation that happened in the family life as a result of it. Are you with me? Do you understand? And here's what I think we've lost. Let's be honest. I think men have lost the leadership of their family at times. You know what's interesting? And I'm telling you, this week, just looking at it, just studying, I'm just like, man, Lord, I'm like, what... If my life could be examined, does it fit in the text of the moral family qualifications? This was something that got raised up. I want to raise up justification. I want to raise up what God has called the family to. So you find that this is part of the great thing about the Reformation is there. It got raised up a level to where God wanted it. And, and I would tell you um, that I wonder sometimes are we still, we're faithful to this justification by faith alone. Are we faithful to what God has called the family to. So that's a little bit about the Reformation. The Catholic view was low priority of marriage and family, high priority of singleness and celibacy. Martin Luther comes in and completely obliterates and destroys it, takes us back to the Genesis ideal, takes us back to where God had wanted it to be and to look. And I will tell you this. I think, men, we have to be serious we have to be serious about how we're discipling our families. This is what I love about the Reformation. You know what grits my heart sometimes? You ever read the story of Lot, right? And Sodom and Gomorrah, right? You ever read that before, right? You know what's interesting? His wife didn't escape, his daughters did. But you could take his daughters out of Sodom, but you couldn't take Sodom out of their hearts, right? 
you ever read the story, you know what I'm talking about. Here's my concern for us fathers. I think sometimes it's like we're living in Sodom all around us. We really are. And I think we've got to be careful that Sodom is not entering the hearts of our kids. Now, I can't change my kid's heart. Only Jesus can do that. But I'll tell you what. There is just about nowhere we can't turn right now where Sodom is trying to get right into our kid's heart. What I love about the Reformation this year for me studying it was just this revival in my soul of, wait a minute, God has called us men to shepherd our families, to pastor our families. And part of the cry of the Reformation you could see in Martin Luther's own life was that he took a wife of 26, him being 42. Three years before he got married to her, he's quoted as saying, they will never force a wife upon me. And then he has six children and married for 24 years. It's said that, that Katie, his wife, had earned such respect from her husband, whom she excelled in virtually all worldly matters. She became a model housewife and an accomplished businesswoman. To increase their income, she remodeled, uh, remodeled their home in which, Martin, which, in which they lived that could accommodate 30 guests and students. She expanded their garden, repaired the brewery. Luther people are really big into beer, right? They dubbed her the Morning Star of Wittenberg as her day began at 4 a.m. So you have, here's a husband and wife working hard, raising godly children. It said, it, Luther said this, for bringing up about ch- child raising, for bringing up their children properly is the shortest road to heaven. In fact, heaven itself could not be made nearer or achieved more easily than by doing this work. It is also their appointed work. Luther said this about raising children, that they can do no better work and do nothing more valuable for God, for Christendom, and for all the world and for themselves than for children to be brought up and brought up well in the Lord. He also had this to say, by the same token, hell is no more easily earned than, the spo- than a spoiled child. Let them curse and swear. Let them learn profane words and vulgar songs. Just let them do as they please would be the worst thing a parent could do. Luther elevated this idea that a husband and wife, a mother and father, would raise up godly a godly heritage of disciples to the Lord. I'm so thankful for their influence today. I'm also thankful for a couple other things. You know, in the the Catholic world at the time, sex and marriage, but we know sex isn't dirty, right? If it's in marriage, right? We we all in agreement with this, right? Um, This was God's idea. It's only dirty in marriage, right? I mean, it's dirty outside of marriage, not dirty in marriage. Delete that. But really, the... The idea at that time in the Catholic Church was if, if sex even happened, it was only for procreation, right? And God said it was okay, but it's still a little dirty, right? That was the consensus in thought. Even when you read some of Luther's earlier stuff, he still try to come. He still comes out of that thought. Very interesting. He says this: the old man Adam who fell in paradise and is inborn in us, that infamous bag of worms we carry around our necks. And never ceases to plague us with his evil lusts and desires to commit sin and adultery. But one can control sin and the estates of marriage, virginity, and womanhood. Yet even marriage is not all pure. A married couple cannot sleep together without shameful desire, even though they both want to live together blamelessly. Only 
Only when we grow old does this lust subside. But for the sake of marriage, God does not reckon this is sin. He chooses to adorn marriage not by calling such sin sinful, even though they are. Disagree with Luther here, right? Because God closes his eyes to this sin. It is forgivable in marriage. He struggled in his early years with this topic of sex and marriage. Later, as you can start to see, he, you can see that he starts to kind of grapple with this. You can see that he actually goes from it's just all sin to actually this is a part of showing love to each other. This is part of a committed relationship. Actually, there's nothing wrong with this actually happening inside of a marriage. Now, why would I bring this up? Here's a reason. Because part of the Reformation, sola scriptura, right? Sola grace, right? We get the, the justification by faith. But we also get this bringing up the family to God's standard with what he wants. And even Martin Luther in his life went from this, it's dirty even in marriage, to, wait a minute, this is something good to bless each other and to serve each other with to the glory of God. Now, I've been counseling people for quite a while now. And typically, here's the list of problems that are usually there. And if you're having problems in your covenant, you know it too. It's sex, money, and communication. Here's the weird thing. For most women, it's communication, money, sex. For most men, it's sex, money, communication. Everybody with me on this one, right? Now, look at, a fee- look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Is Luther during his time of exile is translating the Bible into the German language from Erasmus, uh, from Erasmus copy in the Latin? He's he's writing things. People are reading things. Part of the Reformation is you start to see more Bibles getting produced. This is part of the Reformation. People are reading the scriptures. They're getting the scriptures in their own language, and they're even discovering what God has actually called them to. And you have the Reformation to thank for that. You know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid of we've even messed it up even now. You know that most people only enter into the marriage bed if one of the other spouses has done something right to deserve it? That's what happens a lot of times, right? It's like, well, when you've been good, this can happen. Or when I'm in the mood, this can happen. You're not capturing the spirit of what the Reformation did for marriage and family. Let's look at what God's standard actually has to say. This is the, this is the spirit of, of, of the Reformation. It, it changes a family. It changes a marriage. Look what he says in chapter 7, verse 2. But because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Just so you understand, the Catholic Church at that time would not teach you that. They would consider this a dirty passage. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What's interesting, God's home and structure is he leads, she follows. But when it comes to the bedroom, there's this equality where they have ownership. Not demanding, not abuse, but they have a benevolent ownership of each other. You know what's interesting? Anytime I'm doing marriage counseling with somebody and, and we're talking about the issue of the marriage bed, the rarely do people capture this idea that this is hers and this is his. And 
what they'll kind of do is they'll say questions like, well, how often does this have to happen? Just give me a number, Nick, so I can at least fulfill the bottom level and just kind of make this thing happen, right? And I would go, actually, the text of Scripture says as much as it's asked and request because marriage is really about self-sacrifice, right? Showing the glory of God. Now, if you're thinking, hear me, you're thinking, I'm uncomfortable with you talking about this. Yeah, well, there's probably bigger problems in your marriage. You better stop being so embarrassed about this topic and you better stop thinking it's such a dirty topic. It's dirty outside of marriage. You listen to me. Anybody that's dating and you're, even if you're engaged and you're partaking in anything, anything, it's sin, it's wrong, it's terrible, it's egregious. It's a sin against your spirit and your body. God condemns it and he destroyed, he destroyed whole cities because of it. But inside the covenant of marriage, this is not a bad thing. This is actually something that shows forth a sacrificial heart and spirit. Notice in the text, he says this. If you're going to stop doing this, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Which I love that the scriptures say that if you think you're that powerful against lust, you're really not. (laughs) They're like, actually, this should be regular. I cannot tell you how many times I'm talking about healthy, healthy marriages, healthy people, right? There does, there does come a part in life where, you know, you're not getting better with age, <laughs> you know? You're not getting better with age. And so I'm not telling you you have to act like you did in your 20s, which you did in your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, and your 60s. But I am telling you this. The Reformation brought this new, not, not this new, this principle that already contained in the scripture of what married life is supposed to look like. And it's a life that's generous and serving and sacrificial. It does not withhold itself. It does not, and, and it, it, I mean, like I cannot tell you how many times I've sat down with people who are healthy and you ask them, when was the last time you were together as God has ordained in the marriage bed? And you'll hear months, years, years. I'm talking about, like healthy young people. Why is that? They lost what the Reformation did for the family. What's also very interesting about the Reformation is, since marriage was such a big thing, preparation for marriage was a big thing. So part of a parent's job was to disciple their kids and prepare them for marriage. You know what happens right now? Here's what happens. A parent will train their kids on so little when it comes to marriage. And here's the thought the average parent has. Well, we'll have them take premarital counseling and that'll get them ready for their marriage. Anybody recognize that thought, right? I'm not going to say anything because, you know what? We got Pastor Nick and we're going to, I'm not saying anybody thinks this, but we're going to send them to him. And I can tell you this. If, the, if your child or anybody wanting to get married is going to decide to learn about God's ideal for marriage and what God wants, the moment we start doing premarital counseling, we're already way behind. Like, we're way behind. Any premarital counseling that you do, that anybody goes into, is really just icing on the cake of the foundation of the cake that's already been laid there by parents discipling their kids. Yes, parents, we have to train our children on what a godly home looks like. 
We model for our children what a godly home looks like. We model for our children what it looks like for a husband and wife to love each other. We model in our homes what it looks like to confess your sins. I mean, it it shouldn't be abnormal that our children hear mom and dad say, I sinned against God, I sinned against you, will you forgive me? It shouldn't be abnormal. It shouldn't be abnormal that we speak truth into our homes. Sometimes I think we're being silly with the things that we think. I've had this thing sometimes said to me that, like, be careful that you don't Bible thump your kids. Okay. Don't Bible thump your kids. Well, what do you want me to do? Let the world thump them? Since when do we think that man's secular ideas that are all about himself is a better idea to just let a kid wander in and have themselves? Here's the, the thing we keep getting, even our culture, in our, even among the Christian community. We keep thinking our kids are good intrinsically. And then we just lay off and let them do their thing. They'll naturally, because of the sweet goodness of their hearts, they'll just come back to Jesus. I don't believe that for a second. I'm not talking about cramming the Bible down your kids' throats, but I am saying this. As parents, we got to speak the word, talk the word. As we, what, is, what does Deuteronomy 6 tell us? So we, I mean... As we're walking, as we're eating, when we're going to bed, like the word of God is always oozing out in our home and our family. You have the reformation to thank for those ideals for the family. That bringing back to the surface what God had called. You have a great, in which by the way, Martin Luther was not perfect. When you look in his life, sometimes he gave bad advice. At the end of his life, there was a little bit of potentially anti-Semitism. But I will tell you this, you see in the Reformation this idea that the family is God's cornerstone. And what Christians sometimes are losing is this idea that God has called the children to turn to the Lord through a father discipling his children, through a mother following him, uh, opening themselves up to the possibility of children, to fruit for the kingdom, And you have the Reformation to thank that kind of brought this back. So I wonder in our hearts sometimes, do we really see family as God sees family? Do we really see, we've got justification by faith, but do we see what justification actually brought into the family life? Would you pray with me? I want to just pray over this. And I don't know if this hits you or not, but for me as a pastor, just thinking about how God used the Reformation for the family It was convicting for my own soul. Father, would you bless as we sing to you, as we prepare to take communion. God, would you help us as fathers, as husbands? Would you let us be one woman men? From our hearts to our actions. Would you let us as husbands disciple our children at all phases of life? Would you let the wives follow and then as excellent helpers manage the home, teach their children, love their husbands, and teach the younger women to do the same? Would you let us teach what's good? Would you shake loose the spirit of the age that our children get inculcated with? The idea of the idea of self-exaltation, the idea of rebellion, the idea of living life unto themselves. God, would you help us?
There is so much sin that's attacking us. Sodom is all around. Would you help us to get Sodom out of our hearts? Would you help us? We need your help. Let us sing to you. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. We have the opportunity to be dead to sin and alive to Christ. That we can have a renewed mind through your word and spirit. Bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen.